So there are two things that I wanted to share with you that occurred about five minutes before I left for, for 20-somethings tonight. The first one was my son, Evan, who's nine, going on 32, and uh, knows literally all things Legos. I have no idea where he gets his Lego information. No idea at all. But on the way out, he's like, Dad, I, I thought about a song today that was really cool and I wanted to share it with you. I was like, okay, here it comes. And I said, what is it, Evan? And he goes, all your promises are yes and amen. Like, you need to go preach for me tonight. Uh, what a blessing, and then to be able to sing it tonight. But then the second thing is my daughter, Kaylin, who is 17, she's going to be a senior this year at Liberty High School. She said to me on the way out, she's like, Dad, okay, do I have to be 18 to be in 20-somethings, or do I have to graduate from high school? And I said, I think it's technical you've got to graduate from high school, but we could probably slip you in the back. The reason why I tell you that is because I want you to know there is a younger generation. They cannot wait to be with this community. They're, they're eager to be with you all. And that warmed my heart as her dad to know that she's already anticipating her next step in her journey in community with a fellowship of believers. And so uh, I'm excited to be here tonight. I've got two other kids. I've got Levi, who is the carbon copy of me, just a few inches shorter. Uh, and then my son, Isaac, who is 15, and then uh, my wife, Jamie. And actually, I want to talk about Jamie to, to start out my message tonight. But before we do that, will you, will you join me in prayer as we open up God's Word? Heavenly Father, uh, we are we're humbled tonight to, to come and to open up your, your Word because uh, James 4 is it's a very serious passage of Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that we would not take this passage of Scripture lightly. I pray that we would slow down long enough to really let this sink in. And Father, that your word, as it always does, it would separate bone and marrow. It would, it would dig deep into the, the recesses of our soul. It would go into our mind and it would allow us to, days from now, months from now, perhaps even years from now, allow us to recall a new way that you are trying to speak into our lives. And Lord, you did that for me this week. Lord, you... you gave to me a passage of scripture to, to teach on that I'm not unfamiliar with, but Lord, you shined a new light into it, and I was able to see it with new eyes for the first time, and I'm grateful for that. And so, Lord, I'm so thankful for this community of believers. I'm thankful for each and every individual, those that I know, those that I don't know, those who I know their story, those who I don't. But God, you know their story. You know their heart. You also know their challenges and their trials as they stepped in today. So, Father, pray that you would guide our conversation. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit that you've promised to dwell in us. And, God, we thank you for the gift, ultimately, of redemption and eternal hope that we have in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's a question for you. Have you now, you have to be honest with this, okay? Have you ever purchased dirt? I know Jay has. Has anyone else purchased dirt? Raise your hand high. Let's be proud. We're dirt buyers. Like buying dirt, it's worse than buying water, isn't it? Like there's something about buying water, kind of trendy, fashionable, but buying dirt, like who buys dirt? I buy dirt. And the reason why I buy dirt is because my wife, she loves to garden. Like gardening is her thing. It's her deal. She's next level 
gardening. The next step for her is like a YouTube channel on gardening, I think. So, but do not give her that idea because she will run with that. But the reason why she loves to garden is because for her, it's, it's really something about the seasonality and about the preparation and about the slowed pace and the connection with creation. And also, it's the happiness of the harvest that meets her after a long season of gardening. It really helps meet some of her physical and psychological and even social needs, the social need of being alone, being away from me and my four children. But for me, it's a ton of work. Not only do I have to go to Lowe's and buy dirt, but I'm also the person that has to get the foundation of the dirt set. I've got to go out to our back lot, dig several wheelbarrows of clay-filled dirt, and then bring that up to the garden and get that prepared for her. I'm also the official garden box maker, which sounds really dramatic, but it isn't. It's just putting together a few pieces of wood. But it makes her happy, and it really fulfills her, and it's neat for me to be able to see the joy that it brings to her. In gardens, if you think about gardens, they appear throughout Scripture. It's actually a really interesting metaphor and and a geographic reality that that is occurring throughout Scripture. It starts in Genesis, of course, with the Garden of Eden, and then it moves into Solomon's gardens, and then it moves over into the New Testament in Matthew 26 uh, with the Garden of Gethsemane, and then also with the Garden near Jesus' tomb and in John 19. And then finally, the final garden that we read about, of course, is in Revelation, and that's the garden that's foreshadowed of the New Kingdom. Gardens are a symbol of grace because they're a reflection of promise of creation and fulfillment. And there is this continuous goodwill. I love that term when you define what grace is. You know, I always thought about God's riches at Christ's expense, you know, the acronym or the acrostic rather. And that's true. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. But this new term that kind of came up in my study about this process of continuous goodwill that occurs as a result of grace. And it also occurs in the gardening process. It's a simple process, but it's not simplistic. It involves all sorts of things, of course, planning and tending and patience and monitoring and problem solving and weeding and cultivation and pruning and picking and ultimately enjoying the fruit of the harvest. And within a matter of months, we see this remarkable transformation that occurs from the dirt that was located near the creek in the back lot plus the Lowe's organic dirt that I paid far too much for, that turns into this amazing, overwhelming, abundant creation. And we've got a picture of what the garden was at the beginning of the season to what the garden was a couple of days ago. That's, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Like, that's a beautiful garden. Let's go back one slide. That's okay. That's just me doing some work. But the garden, what a picture. What a picture of God's grace. What a beautiful symbol of that. So this picture of God's grace that's realized through creation is analog- it's analogous to the greater grace that is promised to us in James chapter 4. And accompanying this promise of greater grace are actually really hard words that we're going to look at tonight. Words that challenge us towards practical application. And the greater grace does not come without a cost. In fact, James, really in chapter 4, he's like, all right, crew, it's now time to drop the hammer. I've only got a couple of chapters left. I'm really going to bring the heat, and he does it. But what we find in this, even in the midst of the hard words, is that grace, like the grace found in tending a garden, requires all of the same things, right? It requires preparation and cultivation, planting to receive God's grace, keeping the weeds of sin at bay, keeping enemies out, harvesting, and then sharing that bounty, sharing that grace with other people. 
So, I know that you guys have been camping out in the book of James. I love James. James chapter 1 ministered to me deeply as a young believer when I was 16 years old. And it has been such a a huge part of my own journey uh, ever since. And so to be able to come in and study with you all, James chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 is a blessing. And so tonight, what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture, first, we're going to see that God's greater grace will always be in conflict with how the world defines truth. And second, we'll see that the fruit of God's greater grace will never be realized when we sow seeds of pride. And then finally, we'll see that God is relentless in offering his greater grace to us. So we're going to unpack that in much more detail, but I wanted to just give you the flyby for those of you who frame out your notes. So before exploring these truths in a little bit more depth, you know, it's really important that we understand more fully, like, who is this guy named James? And what makes his perspective on Jesus any different than any of the other writers in the New Testament? Well, as you probably know, or you may have heard from past messages, the author James is the half-brother of Jesus. And the thing about James is, he didn't fully believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15.7, there's a very interesting passage of Scripture to show Jesus before going to the disciples after his resurrection, who does he go to first? He goes to James. James gets to see the resurrected Jesus before the disciples do, which is a pretty amazing thing. James ultimately would become a leading figure in the church in Jerusalem. And in fact, he was actually the first bishop of that church. And his writings are very exhortative, very challenging, James is a specialist at at the end of every sentence, instead of it being a period, it's going to be a question mark or an exclamation mark, right? He's really, really good at that. He, He brings heat and he does it unashamedly. And the book of James is directed towards the church that is dispersed throughout that region. So now the church is starting to go out. They're starting to be in different cities. And there's a term for that called the diaspora. And he's actually addressing the diaspora. That's disbursement of these individuals throughout the region. But these Christians, they're they're really resident aliens. So they live in these cities, but they're kind of alien in that they they follow a different moral law because they're believers in the gospel. And by definition, these believers, they're exiles because they don't quite fit into the cities that they are actually a part of. So as we consider who James is and then who the audience is intended for, we now can see that we can't limit the writings of James just to a call to action to us individually, but rather we have to take in James as a call to action to us collectively. So when we talk about James, I want you to think about it through the lens of what is James 4, 1 through 6 saying to 20-somethings? What is James 4, 1 through 6 saying to your community of believers that you are connecting with? What does James 4, 1 through 6 say to our church body? We must receive this as instruction because if we don't, we will then take it out of context. And we see that the overall theme of James is this, that real faith produces real fruit and fruit doesn't lie. Real faith produces real fruit and fruit doesn't lie. Put differently, there's there's a commentator that says this. I want you to listen closely to this particular sentence, because if, if you don't listen closely, it may go past you, and you may think that I've got some bad theology. I promise you I, I don't, because there's a, there's a qualifier at the end of this. It says, 
We are certainly not saved by works, but neither are we saved without them. Let me read that again. We are certainly not saved by works, but neither are we served without them. So what they're meaning there is, when we are truly saved, our lives will produce gospel-centered fruit. And it's almost as if James is reflecting on Jesus' teaching during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, or the Sermon on the Plain later on in the Gospels. But what he's doing is he's building his five-chapter manifesto of gospel-centered faith. He's basically saying, you want to know in five chapters how to live a gospel-centered life? Read this and follow this. So when studying scripture, it's vital that we take into account the full context of that passage, even if it means overlapping or going beyond that section or a chapter break. So for example, many of you are probably familiar with the passage Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. It's on plaques, it's on bumper stickers, it's on Instagram posts, it's all over the place. And what it says is, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? But if you read Jeremiah 29.10, what Jeremiah 29.10 says is, you're actually not going to realize any of the blessing because you are a people that are in exile in Babylon, and it's going to take 70 years for you to get out of exile. So yes, Jeremiah 29.11, you are going to be taken care of by the Lord, but you've got 70 years, and the generation that I'm speaking to right now, you're going to be dead before you even realize that. That's what taking context of Scripture does for you when you're like, maybe I need to take that off of my car as my bumper sticker because I need to read Jeremiah 29.10, right? So that's always a good reminder for me when I think about why it's so important to take Scripture in context. I always think about Jeremiah 29.11. And when I see Jeremiah 29.11 without the proper context, it's a good reminder of taking in the overall narrative of Scripture. So in order to properly understand James 4, 1 through 6, we also have to kind of go backwards a few verses. Some of these verses you already heard from Ryan last week, but it's important that we dive in starting in James 3, 13, just six verses, just six verses prior. So if you have your Bible or if you have your Bible app, I want to encourage you to turn to James 3, 13, and I'm going to read out of that over to James 4, 6. So who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition on your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but it is earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. He used the D word. It's demonic. Like, okay, it's heavy. I know know what your altitude is right now, James. Okay. But the wisdom from above, it's first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So it's almost as if James is saying, that's the gold standard. But then there's not a very big gap between the end of James 3 and the beginning of James 4. In fact, it's a continuation of the conversation because he says, but what is the source of wars and fights among you, community of believers? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship of the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says... 
And the people who were hearing this and reading this were saying, can you give us a little bit of a break? Thankfully, he does, where he says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. If this passage of scripture were a traffic light, it would be a railroad crossing with blinking red lights. It would be the railroad guard with the, the wood coming down and stopping your vehicle from going onto the tracks. It would be the bells would be ringing. It would be loud. You would, it would be obvious that you need to take caution because you're about to cross some tracks where there's going to be a locomotive coming. And the locomotive that James is talking about here and the intensity of this, of this exhortation has to do with this train wreck of pride that is coming right to our lives. But the formula for receiving God's greater grace is also gifted to us in this passage through direct instruction of Scripture. I've got to wonder if James is reflecting right now in this passage where he's, he's thinking about the fact that his entire prideful heart, his own version of truth, was redefined by the greater grace that was revealed in the resurrection. And he probably also resented the fact that and probably was thinking about how he wasted quite a bit of his life knowing that he was in the physical presence of the Messiah, yet he wasted it away because he depended on his own truth. So this brings us to our first reality of James 4, 1 through 6, which is this. A greater grace will always be in conflict with how the world defines truth. In this passage, James uses very sharp language, hard language, to demonstrate what happens when the world distorts truth. Words like bitter, envy, selfish ambition, boasting, envy, fights, quarrels, wrong motives, and enmity against God. And then the word spend in verse 3, it also has the same meaning of the word spend that is found in the parable of the prodigal son. So James 4.3 says, You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's the same word that Luke uses in 15.14 where he says, Jesus describes the younger son who has taken his inheritance from his father and he spent all that he had. So James is even creating kind of this parallel back to his brother's uh, parable that he shared about the parable of the prodigal son. So Jesus and James are very clear that the attributes of worldly truth are not from above. Francis Schaeffer was a brilliant theologian. He died in 1984. However, he offered a timeless and compelling argument in the book, The God Who Is There, which I would strongly encourage you to look up, The God Who Is There. And he talks about this chasm that has occurred over the past hundred years for people's definition of truth. And he contends that there was a line of despair that occurred right around 1935, right in the middle of World War II. By the way, if you want to read about someone who, who is sitting in that chasm, uh, I would encourage you to read any of the biographies on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And you'll see some very fascinating things that Bonhoeffer actually is learning about Germany through the lens of spending time in America. In fact, this is a bit of a side note, but it's only until Bonhoeffer comes over to America to see the racism that is occurring that he then goes back over to Germany and realizes that Nazi Germany is behaving in the same way. And although they are trying to act under the cover of the church, what Bonhoeffer points out is they are moving very quickly away from the church. 
And so this is what Schaefer is referring to when he talks about this line of despair. And he contends that the seed of what today we call humanism and rationalism, it originated in Nazi-led Germany and then it spread outward. And he contends that this rationalism or the individual's definition of their own truth infiltrated the following things in the following order. First, it infiltrated philosophy. Then it infiltrated art. Then humanism and rationalism infiltrated music, and then general culture, and then theology. So here's, here's maybe a visual of that. So pre-1935, if this was 1935, there was one definition of truth. One definition. And philosophy and art and music and general culture and theology, they were within that circle. And then 1935, and of course, we experience it every day, all day, about people's own definition of truth, right? People start developing their own circles. And all of these circles have their own view and their own definition of truth and philosophy and art and general culture and theology. If you decide for truth to be that way, then you decide for truth to be that way. And if you decide for truth to be that way, then that's great. And Rakisha, if you want to draw a triangle up here, because you don't even want it to be a circle, then that's okay. And then we can start drawing squares, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, it's yours, you own it. You're in charge of your theology and your art and your cultural confidence. That's up to you. And so this chasm has occurred. And of course, we're not the first culture that has experienced this line of despair, right? I mean, the Israelites, they were masters at that with God. God's like, I'm throwing manna from heaven, and they're like, we're good, line of despair, we're moving on, okay? So, this line of despair that James is addressing in chapter four, verses one through six, what he's doing is he's comparing the, fra- the factions of war and disputes among that particular body of believers, okay? He addresses directly the timeless and sinful nature that we all have in pursuing our own personal passions, He's also using incredibly strong language in James 4.4 when he's addressing them as you adulterous people. This is not physical adultery between two people. What he's talking to is you all, community of believers, you are violating, you you are creating mistrust between yourself as a community of believers and God the Father. And that language he's using, that's very sharp language. So this is similar to the language, again, that we find in the Old Testament in reference to the nation of Israel's unfaithfulness to God's leading and his laws. And James is speaking directly to a body of believers that has moved away from God's definition of truth and who have chosen to replace it with their own preferred definition of truth. So it's kind of interesting when you think about, when you start to think about like why things may be so confusing in life, if everyone is defining truth their own way, it's like having two nine-year-olds in your home, because I have two of them. Here's the one truth that they know. We have two ground rules in our house. Number one, don't lie. And number two, don't mess with my wife, because she was my wife before she was your mother. Amen. And if you lie to my wife, consequences, Legos, Frisbees, it's going away. Okay. So for my children, what I have done is I've established a line of truth. So they know that way, if they decide to behave and it goes against, you know, counter to that line, they understand that there's going to be implications, right? So in the same way, we've been given the gift of scripture because we have truth. It's at our fingertips. It isn't about the absence of truth. 
We're just really good at times of suppressing the truth, correct? So just because we suppress the truth doesn't mean that we can say that the truth is absent. So James, he, he, he basically points us to the true giver of greater grace, which is Jesus. And because Jesus offers a greater grace, we can be encouraged by the, the famous verse, John 14, 6, that says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, I want us to slow down because that's, that one rolls off the tongue pretty easily, right? It's an easy one to remember, but let's slow down and soak in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This incredible proclamation was a response to the questions from his disciple Thomas. And we're like, yeah, doubting Thomas. Thank you, doubting Thomas. Thank you for having the courage to ask the question. Thank you for modeling to us that our God is not surprised by our questions or he's not surprised by our doubts. In fact, he welcomes those doubts so that he can do what? Share truth so that others will be blessed by that, right? And in one sentence, Jesus answers for Thomas because Thomas says, we don't know where you're going, Lord. Where are you going, Lord? And probably Thomas was not just talking about like, are you going to that mountainside? Are you going over to that lake? Are you going to go fast? Are you going to go create some, some new meals for people at a wedding? Thomas was saying, where are you going? Because where you're going, we're following you, and I'd kind of like to know where to go too. So Thomas asks this question, and right when he says that, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So we ask the same questions, don't we? What is the way? Well, Jesus says, I am the way. Well, what is truth? Jesus says, I am truth. Jesus, or what we ask this question, what is the meaning of life? And Jesus says, I am life. And how do we have access to our Heavenly Father? Jesus says, I am the only way to the Father. And it is because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life that he is willing and able to offer us this greater grace that his brother James talks about in James 4. But what prevents us from seeing and receiving and living out this greater grace? So this brings us to our second truth found in James 4, 1 through 6. The truth is that the fruit of God's greater grace will never be realized when we sow seeds of pride, right? Remember, fruit doesn't lie, and fruit comes from good planting, good soil. But this is the point of the message where, honestly, I wanted to kind of skip from point one and, like, jump to point three and have just a long discussion question in between because I really didn't want to bring my thoughts about point two. And the reason why is because I specialize in sowing seeds of pride. I mean, if honorary doctorates were handed out for competency and pride, I would not have enough wall space in my office at home. Okay? James pulls no punches when addressing the very real and dangerous effects of pride. So the Greek word that James offers is used exclusively but it's used, unfortunately, in an unfavorable sense. This is not the, I'm proud of my kids, proud. That's certainly not the, I'm proud of my team, proud. It's not the, here's my medal, I'm proud of my half marathon, proud. Now, this is a different kind of pride. This is huperophanos, the Greek word. 
that has a very deep and dark meaning that James is referring to. In fact, it's such an exclusive use of this word that it's only used four other times in the New Testament. In Luke 151, in a passage known as the Magnificat, Mary offers a hymn foreshadowing Jesus, foreshadowing the Messiah, and she's reflecting on the generations that have led to this moment when she says, God has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has scattered the huperophanos because of their thoughts. Check your thought life lately. In 1 Peter 5, 4 through 5, the disciple Peter, who demonstrated pride viscerally when he denied Jesus three times, addresses the elders in the passage when he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And in the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God resists the proud. He resists the huperophanos, but gives grace to the humble. In Romans 1, 28 through 30, the Apostle Paul diametrically and dramatically opposes the righteous with the proud to the church in Rome when he writes this, this passage. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they did not do what was right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, boastful, proud, huperophanos, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Pride is in the company of some very serious violations. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, listen to this, they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Like they know the truth. They know this is true, but yet they applaud this. That's 2,000 years ago. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. I love Timothy. You know, Timothy is known by Paul as the true son in faith. Not a bad label to get from Paul. Paul says, you're the true son of faith. That's a big deal. So go write some stuff. And he does in 2 Timothy where he says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, huperophanos, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, or irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love. Can you tell that he, he served under Paul? Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this is just one of those verses that stops you in your tracks because it says, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Yeah, but not really. No, yeah. No, not really. That's what Paul's talking about. You know the truth. We hold to the form of truth, but yet we deny the power of it. And then he closes by saying, avoid these people. Just be done with them. Every enemy that stands at the gate of our soul, every single enemy, I believe, feeds on the poison of pride. It's, their, it's the fuel of pride. Pride is like, you know, the, you know the whole thing about antifreeze with animals? You know the problem with antifreeze? When you spill antifreeze on a garage floor, first of all, it's like nuclear green. It's like Homer Simpson nuclear reactor green. So like the animals, I think they're colorblind though. But anyway, they're attracted to it. They're attracted to the smell of antifreeze. 
and then they're attracted to the taste of antifreeze. It's a sweet taste. But the problem with antifreeze is it's lethal. So antifreeze to animals is like pride to us. We're drawn to the bright color of pride. We're drawn to the sweet taste, and we want more and more and more until, like animals, we start to act drunk like they do when they're having antifreeze in their body, and then it moves from a drunkenness to kidney failure, and then from kidney failure to all of the other organs shut down, and ultimately it leads to their death. That's how serious pride is. Over 800 years ago, St. Bernard of Clairvaux developed the t these 12 steps, but not the Alcoholic Anonymous 12 steps. And, and it was actually to identify not a problem with beer, but rather a problem with pride. So we've got a slide for you, and I want to show this. Hopefully you guys are able to read this. If not, I can kind of walk through it. And we're going to go quickly through this, okay? And we're going to use this for your next question, so we'll leave it up here. The notion that St. Bernard says is that we start with curiosity, completely innocent, right? I'm just curious about that. Like, I kind of heard antifreeze is okay. Like, I like triangles. Squares have corners. We're curious. Then it moves to levity of mind, where all of a sudden things become a little bit more blurry and you start just accepting the fact and you want to kind of have this levity of mind. Then it moves to giddiness. Who doesn't like a giddy person, right? Boasting. And then it moves to singularity. And the singularity is where I'm the one now making the decisions. I'm the one that's starting to define my truth. That's what being singular means in focus. Self-conceit moves to presumption. You can see things are starting to get worse and worse, both internally and maybe even publicly. Self-justification, hypocritical confession, Saying one thing, remember the Merle, or the Merle, wow, remember the, the verse in uh, James 2, the mirror, that's the word I'm looking for, the mirror verse, right, where it says you look at a mirror and then all of a sudden you turn away and you're a different person. That's what that's talking about, hypocritical confession. And then there's the revolt and then freedom to sin. And then finally, you just say, you know what, I'm throwing in the towel, I've got a habit of sinning. But here's the beauty of this process, right? You get all the way to the top of a mountain. And you have this amazing, unobstructed view of the glory of yourself. That's what the 12 steps of pride do for you. It gets you a bird's eye view of how good you think you are. Anyone else ready to get the mountain view off the screen? Can I get an amen on that? All right, very good. So uh, here's the question that I asked. You can take that down, Nick, if you'd like. That's fine. We've, we've had enough. Thank you. That's a much better logo right there. The one question that I, I came back to over and over when I was looking at that mountain was, what if there was no solution to the problem of pride? Like, what if we were stuck with that? Like, what if there was no antidote to the toxin? What if there was no serum for the poison, right? What if there was no vaccine for the virus of pride? There is only one solution. There's only one truth. John 14, 6 says it again. Only one way. And there's only one cure, one vaccine for the ravages of pride. Because pride makes me think of, you know, in Vietnam, you see the videos of these napalm bombs that they would drop. And it would just absolutely annihilate an entire swath of forest and just torch it. It feels like that's what pride can do in our own hearts. But here's the beauty. The beauty is point three, which is this. 
we see that the final truth of James 4, 1, 6 is that greater grace is not only available to us, but it is God who relentlessly pursues us with that greater grace. I love Eugene Peterson's translation in the message of James 4, 4 through 5. It, you know, if you are doing a Bible study and you've kind of been in it, one of the best things you can do is just pull out a translation of the message and go, okay, Eugene, can you just talk some basics to me here? And this is what he says, James 4, 4 through 5. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? Well, the proverb has it say that he's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. Because that's true. That's why we have a God who is a jealous God. He relentlessly pursues us with a greater grace in order to forgive us of our pride, redeem us of our past, and set the course for us to live out God's great commandment and to live for God's great commission. See, he's envious because he sees pride seeping slowly into our hearts. And why does he not like that? It's because, number one, he's a holy God. But number two, it's the pride that killed his son. It's the pride that keeps us, his children, from drawing close to him. And it's the pride that mocks his truth. So, how do we move away from the mountaintop of pride? Like, I'm good. I've got the view. I've got the two-minute selfie. I'm going to go down. I want to go down into the valley of humility. Please take me. Well, thankfully, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, 800 years ago, also wrote chapter 2, which was the 12 steps into deeper humility. So that slide says this, that it begins with, at the top of the mountaintop, it begins with a fear of God, just acknowledging Let's just start reading Proverbs. Let's read James 4. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Let's start fearing God. That's where we start. Then we move down to the abnegation of self-will, where you're releasing, saying, I'm surrendering. We then obey. We have patient endurance. We have disclosure of the heart, where we're honest about where we're at, our vulnerability. Then there is a contentedness of what is, we have a lucid self-awareness. We're highly aware of who we are and how we're affecting other people. We have a submission to the common rule which says, not only do I want to care for myself, I want to care for other people. I may not be able to extend a greater grace to Jay, but I can absolutely extend common grace at a minimum. And then this one. down to this valley, this beautiful valley where growth occurs. For those of you who've been in Colorado, you know above 12,000 feet, there's no growth that occurs, right? Above tree line. Growth occurs in the valley, and it's flourishing. The view may not be as spectacular, but things are growing. You've got to get to silence before you can get down there. Emotional sobriety, restraints in speech, and then finally, I love this one, congruity between one's inside and one's outside. Like, that's just so amazingly simple and beautiful. I love that. That means that everything that's inside is matching what's outside. My internal seeds 
are matching the fruit that's outside. Like the garden analogy is now working fully in my own life. So where does this greater grace show up in our lives? If we define grace only in the context of what we consider to favor us, then we're simply drawing another circle or another triangle or another square below the line of despair. Sometimes grace shows up in ways that we don't expect though, right? Prayers that are seemingly unanswered prayer or unanswered prayers, a calling that is not yet fully realized or clarified. The common occurrences that are found in relationships. Are we recognizing those for the grace that they are? And then here's one. There's grace that shows up when God actually provides a constraint in our current circumstances. That does not feel like grace. Take me back up the mountaintop. That feels like a constraint, and I don't like that because I'm defining my own constraints of how I want it to be. So the ultimate picture, of course, of God's greater grace is found all throughout Jesus' life, through his ministry, through his persecution, through his prosecution, through his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. And if that wasn't enough, he's also promised a spirit. And it's a spirit who desires to dwell in us, to live in us. How do we become more confident in this, though? How do we actually believe that more deeply? How do we translate this biblical truth of James 4, 1 through 6, practically into our everyday lives? Well, briefly, I want to share with you just five things that I think might be a practical help for you. Number one, read Scripture more deeply. Like, start somewhere in Scripture and just do a deep dive. And maybe for, for you guys, James has kind of like unlocked your curiosity of like, James, James is a half-brother of Jesus. How does James and the Sermon on the Mount relate to each other? How is James a lot like Proverbs? What does James tell me about wisdom in other parts of the Bible, right? Perhaps it's soaking up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. You could literally spend a long, long, long time in just those three chapters of 5 through 7. Maybe it's reading slowly through Romans. Maybe it's writing out Romans. Maybe it's memorizing passages of Scripture in Ephesians. My encouragement to you is go deep. For a long time, I thought that once I reached spiritual maturity, then I was going to go deeper. But then something occurred where it was like, I'm going to go deeper, and then we'll just see what happens. And what Scripture did is it unlocked a whole new reality. It also unlocked a lot more questions, which inspired me to go deeper. Second, pray more honestly. I am guilty of this. Dear Lord, have you guys seen Meet the Parents? Day by day, these three things, I pray to love thee. And everyone's kind of looking at him like, sometimes I pray like that because I think God can't handle my raw prayer. Oh my goodness, he can handle your raw prayer. In fact, he invites that open, regular dialogue. He is your father. He can handle those honest prayers. Third, reflect with more certainty. When we read Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for the good. When we read James 1, 2 through 5, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, so that you may be full and complete, lacking in nothing. And when you do that, if any of you lacks wisdom, you can ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach. But let not that person expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all of their ways. 
Just let that soak in. James 1, 2 through 5, the promise of that, and reflect that it's because of the trials that you'll be able to ask for more wisdom, and God will use that through his redemptive, mysterious power so that his kingdom can then be spread to others who are far from him. And then fourthly, commune with more intentionality. Are you asking those closest to you about their enemies that are pouncing at their gate? It's a common question that a couple of us here on staff, guys, ask each other. Caleb, what's the enemy right now at your gate? What can I do to come alongside and help you with that? How do I kick the antifreeze away from the enemy? What do I need to do to help you with that? Are you asking them about the status of their soul? Are you being vulnerable with your questions so that greater grace can be realized in their life? And then finally, can we all commit to recommit to the gospel more regularly? And as you do this, your desire to share with others will also grow. So one of the things that brings my wife, Jamie, greatest joy in her love for gardening is the bounty of the harvest. And it's actually quite comical. We got zucchinis and tomatoes. Does anyone like homemade salsa? Because I will literally deliver it to your house. We have so much. It's like you just went down and got zucchinis. Now you've got a whole nother bowl full, right? It's because of the planning and the preparation. Yes, the purchasing of the organic soil. Okay, that's fine. It's because of that preparation and the planting and the tending and the weeding and the building of the fences and the patient endurance and the proper sunlight and the adaptation and the observation and the complete ownership. It's, it's when we see a transformation occur. And when it does, it goes from the excitement of a seed sprouting to this small evidence of growth a few weeks later. And then all of a sudden we have an abundance of harvest. And it's in this abundance that comes the reality that our family cannot consume all of the fruits and vegetables this garden is producing. We can't consume it fast enough. We have no choice but to give it away. What a beautiful picture of greater grace. I'm so full of the promises of God right now. I have no choice. I've got to give it away. I don't want it to spoil. I don't want it to go to waste. So may we receive the exhortation that James provides so clearly in chapter 4. And he asks several questions in this passage. Is God's spirit dwelling within you? Are you mindful of areas of pride that do not align with God's purpose for your life? Are there enemies at the gate that you need to starve of pride? And finally, are you living in abundance but not sharing that abundance with others? Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is hard to sit with passages of Scripture like this. It's hard for me to sit with passages of Scripture like this because this passage of Scripture was written for me. It was written about me. I proved this passage of Scripture over and over and over. But Lord, you promise us a greater grace because you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. You promise us the greater grace. We get to receive it. But Lord, tonight I pray that you would take these amazing biblical truths that James exhorts to us and that you would move it into practical reality, that we would move from this aspirational notion of Jesus' brother writing many years ago to a daily reality so that we might be able to live 
for you in a deeper way so that we might be able to recognize and acknowledge a greater grace and then Lord that we might be able to share with others Lord we are hopeless without you we love you we are grateful for the gift that you have given us through your greater grace we are grateful for you Jesus we are thankful for the spirit that dwells within all of us who believe and surrender our life to you and so Lord make this scripture be known in our lives and it's in your name we pray. Amen.